Hello, everybody, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Diego Silva. Hello, Diego. Hello, Kate. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Today we're talking about a co-authored paper from Diego um, with Maxwell Smith, and it's entitled Social Distancing, Social Justice, and Risk During the COVID-19 Pandemic, and this has been published in the Canadian Journal of Public Health. So thanks for joining me to talk about your paper. Pleasure. I wonder if you can give us sort of right off the bat, the kind of elevator pitch of the paper. Yeah, so the point of the paper is to say that um, that when we think about social distancing of various kinds, or we wrote it as social distancing, now the, the word is physical distancing. Um, mm. But whether you're thinking about quarantine or whether you're thinking about you know, spending 14 days in a hotel, whatever the case might be, the question is, what do we do with the risks that are created because of those public health measures? And so what this paper tries to do is to argue that um, there's three layers of risk for marginalized populations. So the first layer of risk is the actual virus itself. Mm -hmm. So the virus attacks people at higher rates, uh, those who are immunocompromised, so on and so forth, which happens to be uh, people who are uh, homeless or precariously housed, migrant workers, those living in prisons, um, those individuals all have life circumstances that makes it a more likely for them to get SARS-CoV-2 and then to actually then progress to COVID-19. So that's the first risk. And the second risk is the risk that comes from the actual public health measures that are enacted. And so in this paper, uh, Max and I, agree that we ought to have physical distancing, um, but questions that arise about, you know, what are the repercussions of physical distancing? So one is that you might not be able to physically distance. Um, so if you're dependent on shelter systems, mm-hmm. um, uh, if you are precariously housed a migrant worker, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even if you can distance yourself, what are the repercussions then? Are you able to access food? Does that mean that it makes it more difficult to get to work and therefore you may or may not lose your job, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So then the third risk is um, what we're calling the overdependence on utility. Mm-hmm. So there is a tendency, uh, and this has been noted in the literature, that during public health emergencies, public health officials will default to utility. Yeah. And when you do that, you tend to, again, marginalize those who are already marginalized because you get greater utility out of resource, say, by using it on people who are already healthy or already in a good position, you maximize the resource. Yeah. And so the point of the paper is just to point this out for a lay audience, for a lay public health audience, mm-hmm. and to argue that we need to then work with these communities that, are, that you know, represent people who are marginalized and not not sure from the responsibility to actually put it in the resources necessary. Mm-hmm. So if we have money to save airlines, if we have money to make sure that businesses, you know, still keep people employed, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Um, we also need money for those who are quote unquote, non-productive members of society in different sorts. Right. Which is a complicated category of people. Correct. Anyway. Yeah. That is really interesting because just to kind of spell this out again, it's basically like public health in these kinds of emergencies is faced between spending an intensive amount of resources on 
people who are most likely to get the virus and most vulnerable to its worst effects and spending a lot of money on people who are more resilient already, who are more likely to kind of pull through. And the tendency is towards giving people who are already more resilient more um, resources because, as you said, of their ability to basically create more utility. They're, it's the class of society that's the utility monster. And we'll, com- yeah. we'll project more and more utility with fewer or the same resources as people who require more in order to be at the same level. And, and I think there's I think there's other things at play as well, and we don't get into this necessarily in the paper, mm. um, but you call this sort of the utility monster. The individuals making the decisions tend to be people, say, between 40 and 50, highly educated, so on and so forth. And there's a, you know, usually they're type A's if they're making the decision anyways. <laughs> and so they're individuals who have accomplished a lot. And I think there is a, this is me as an armchair psychologist, so don't take me at, you know, I'm, I'm wondering whether there's evidence, but it strikes me that there is perhaps bias at play where you're going to say, you know, the thing I value is utility, is maximization of one's resources. Yeah. Um, because that's what I've always done. Mm. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I think, sometimes I wonder whether public health officials, I don't think they're doing it maliciously. No, I don't think so. Um, yeah. I just think that, you know, you're in that mindset mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard to get out of it, especially yeah. when there's an emergency. Yeah. And especially because I think that's the government's um, mandate is to maximize. Yeah. Really. So this was obviously written because COVID-19 is happening, but was there any specific event or um news item or something like that that made you think that you needed to write this paper about the social injustices so no and too many to like (laughs) so there wasn't a particular incident i would say Mm -hmm. um but the various articles that i was reading and that max you know and i were talking about all the way back in march you could already see sort of the detrimental effects coming through, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be the policy that was being put in place for the allocation of ventilators, and that's a tricky one, um, all the way to issues around physical distancing and being told, my favorite example is being told to wash your hands. We were you know, inundated with wash your hands, wash your hands, now it's actually lessening. But at the time, right, wash your hands assumes that you have access to water and soap. Yeah. And public health does this every year when it comes to influenza and again this idea of sort of pushing that message um and it's it's not wrong but it's short-sighted right um it's it's biopic and and um so it was kind of just reading the newspaper a lot and being like uh here we go again yes yeah just kind of an interesting reflection from my point of view is like it assumes that you need water and soap but isn't it wild that we live in Australia and yet there are lots of people who don't have access to that two very <laughs> basic essential things? Yeah. So, ooh, that's a can of worms. <laughs> yeah. So I think that I think that one of the things we sort of we touch on in the paper, but it's very a, a very light touch, mm. is why have we gotten here in the first place? Mm. Um, and I think you're right. I think there's a lot of issues. So 
uh, the director general of the WHO the other day came out and said, you know, this is a failure of justice. Mm. Um, we do, you know, this is what happens. At, you, you know, he was speaking at the global level, but this is what happens when you don't have, you know, access to primary health care, when you don't have access to the basic determinants of health, so on and so forth. When you have such inequality, mm-hmm. um, or just just simply income inequality, mm-hmm. and I think that you're seeing that. And um, I guess the thing that really bums me out is that I had this illusion that a pandemic of all things would get people to wake up. Mm-hmm. And wow, that was wishful thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I and and, and uh, so yeah. So I think it's I think it's an indictment on society that there are individuals who don't have so. So I agree. I agree. Yeah. So the main um, theme through the paper is that there are these three levels of risk. Um, I wonder kind of what the main um, argument is, basically. Is it that public health needs to pay attention to these three levels and that public health is imposing at least the second and third? Is that right? Yeah. So um, I guess, the if you know, again, this was for public health workers. Mm-hmm. The longer version of the paper, if you will, mm-hmm. or I guess the conversations that Max and I were having, uh, and I think anybody who's talked to me in the last year has probably heard me rant about this. <laughs> um, but it's it's twofold. So one is that in response to risk, the government and public health units as government impose measures that then confer other risks. Yeah. Right. So that's the it's to be cognizant of that. I think most people are cognizant of that. I think the second part, though, is that when we think in terms of social justice, amongst whatever else social justice means, uh, we are interested in distributions of benefits and burdens, right? And most theories of justice, I would say, regardless of whether you're you're prioritarian, sufficientarian, whether capability is kind of person, whether you're you're Rawlsian, whatever the case might be, um, you value some kind of equality. There is some kind of various various types of egalitarianism that run, I would say, through late 20th century, early 21st century theories of social justice. Mm -hmm. And part of that is then not just the distribution of benefits and burdens, but the distribution of possible benefits and burdens. So, you know, possibility of benefits, risks of harm, also ought to be distributed. Mm-hmm. And so the main individual who sort of shaped my thinking around this was um, Jonathan Wolf and Abner DeShallot. Their book, Disadvantage, that came out probably 10 years ago or so. Yeah. Um, and they speak to this, and they speak to the just distribution of risk. Um, and they approach from a capabilities approach. But I think that I think that they're onto something really important um, uh, because there are costs to be in a position of risk above and beyond whether that risk materializes into a harm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what would be the main kind of takeaway nutshell message that you hope people will gain from reading the paper? So I, I'll, I'll say, I'm not sure whether we do a good job of it in this paper, mm-hmm. but, but I've written different papers now in COVID and they're all, you know, all social justice related. Yeah. Um, they're not repetitious, I promise. <laughs> um, but I think part of the, I think one issue is that we need to recognize that one, that 
a cause or a set, you know, a set of actions has downstream effects mm-hmm. or have downstream effects, pardon me, mm-hmm. um, to pay attention to context and to pay attention to how we invoke, and I think this is critical, how we invoke principles or values, mm-hmm. right? So uh, with the nine public housing towers in Melbourne that were under hard lockdown this week, we're speaking in what, can't remember, July. 10th, 10th. July, yeah. yep. You know, Brett Sutton, Chief Health Officer of Victoria, justified the hard lockdown on the basis of the you know precautionary principles. Well, it's not enough to invoke the precautionary principle. It exists in a context. It exists with history. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to take into account the history of marginalization, the history of race, mm-hmm. the history of surveillance. Who are we usually surveilling? Mm-hmm. Who are we usually policing? And this can't be divorced from the normative ethics discussions that we're having. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really rich territory. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. That's really good. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for coming to talk to me about your paper today, Diego. It sounds really interesting. Um, the paper will be linked in this episode's notes for anyone who's interested in checking it out. And uh, there will also be a transcript there. Thank you very much for listening to the She Research Podcast. You can find us now on iTunes, in addition to all the other great places where podcasts are made available. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.